Is there a flavor of solar energy for everyone? We look at one exciting and accelerating model. Hello, I'm Julia Piper, and welcome back to another episode of Newsflash, a special monthly series here on political climate, where we're shedding light on stories you may have missed or that needed a double click, giving you critical information coupled with details you won't get anywhere else. We're drawing on the latest reporting from Canary Media to bring you the story behind the story, sharing information that got left on the cutting room floor while writing the article. On this week's episode, we'll be talking about community solar, a solar model that aims to reach those who, for many different reasons, can't have solar panels on their roof. Once again, our producer Maria Virginia Alano is here to share some of the reporting Canary Media has done on this topic. You'll also be hearing from Allison Takamura, staff writer at Canary Media, who just reported a story about community solar and how to access it. Hey, Maria Virginia, welcome back on the airwaves. How are you doing today? Hi, Julia. I am doing well, though could be better given the news cycle and the news alert that I think we all got on our phones that Senator Joe Manchin once again was not backing the climate provisions in the Build Back Better plan. That's right. We're speaking just shortly after Senator Manchin announced he's once again pulling his support for the budget reconciliation package, specifically the climate provisions in that big Democrat agenda. We were waiting to see how this would unfold since he shot this down last December, but it looked like there was hope for progress. And I think it's really disappointing now that we've essentially seen hopes quashed for what could have been an incredibly significant federal investment into climate and clean energy programs. We are still going to follow this issue. Brandon Hurlbut and Shane Skelton, my longtime political climate podcast co-hosts, will be back on the podcast to give the inside scoop on how we ended up here on reconciliation and what to watch for next. There are some other pathways forward, including executive action from the president and new regulations. We covered some of those in our last episode about the Environmental Protection Agency's authorities in the wake of the Supreme Court's recent West Virginia versus EPA decision. There's also an opportunity for Congress to approve more funding for clean energy tax credits as part of a spending bill at the end of the year. So we'll be watching closely for that. Plus, it's not all about federal policy. There are still opportunities for action at the state and local levels, which is part of what we're talking about here today. Absolutely. And while it is definitely underwhelming and it's, you know, unfortunate that we won't see the kind of climate legislation coming out of the federal level that I think many of us expected a few years ago, it is worth noting that states and municipalities have tons to do with the clean energy transition as well. And many of them already have plans and laws that support clean energy and climate goals at a super local level. One of those policies that is really, really local, and I mean that in your own neighborhood and has a great positive impact is community solar. Great. So let's get into that and what you learned from Allison. A decade ago, Californians started a climate action movement and launched MCE, the state's first community choice energy provider. Community choice providers empower local communities to make their own decisions about the source of their electricity. Today, MCE offers nearly 40 Bay Area communities almost twice as much renewable energy as the state average. The power of MCE is about more than clean energy. It's the power of people over profit. Learn more at mcecleanenergy.org. Yeah, so this was actually a really fun reporting because Allison started to get interested in this because she herself was interested in getting community solar for her home. And so she reported her experience learning about it and kind of navigating through that. The reason something like community solar is important is because not everyone is able to have their own solar panels. Maybe you don't own your home. 
Maybe you live in a multifamily building or your roof is in a shaded area. There's a ton of reasons why rooftop solar is not for everyone, but that doesn't mean that the benefits of clean energy, including lower prices, can't reach you too. So here is part of my conversation with my colleague, Alison Takamura, uh, where she walks us through what community solar is and how it works. Community solar is this amazing concept where if you can't put solar panels on your roof, you can still benefit from solar that's produced offsite. So these solar panels, they could be located on a really big roof that's on a big box store or on a community center, or they could be located in a field. And so sometimes these arrays of panels are called community solar gardens or farms. And they are moderate systems. They're moderately large. They're up to five megawatts generally. And they can serve multiple people or organizations. And so how exactly does that work? Community solar works by either people jointly owning panels or subscribing to them. And if they subscribe to them, then that means that either a private developer or a utility will typically own those panels. It's most common that they'll actually be subscribed to rather than jointly owned, like in a cooperative. So most people coming to Community Solar, they'll be subscribers and they'll sign up. And then the project actually won't get built until the project is fully subscribed. So each subscriber will get sort of an amount of solar panels or energy that's allocated to them or that's subscribed to them based on their historical usage. So once it's fully subscribed, then the project will get built and it'll come online and then the energy will be sold generally to the utility. So the utility will buy the energy and then the developer and subscribers will all share in essentially that revenue. What that looks like is subscribers will get money back on their electric bills from the utility. So money will be credited to their accounts. And these credits, you know, they vary from place to place, like how much people are compensated for the community solar. So how big is the community solar market here in the U.S. today? According to Solar Energy Industries Association, or SEA, there are 41 states plus Washington, D.C., with at least one community solar project online. These projects collectively make up 4.9 gigawatts of installed capacity, and that's through Q2 of 2022. 20 states have passed legislation that directly supports shared solar projects. And in many states, community solar policies have actually garnered bipartisan support as well. Currently, most of that capacity is concentrated in just a few states, though, and those include New York, Massachusetts, and Minnesota. Though community solar is projected to nearly double in capacity in the next five years across the country. When it comes to solar in general, policy tends to play a big role in how markets develop and grow. So what are some of the policies that benefit community solar developments? There's a lot of variation in this front and in how policies and incentives are designed to promote solar, like you said, in general. There are two basic requirements for community solar projects to be able to be developed. And here's Allison on this. One policy that definitely needs to be in place for community solar to happen is virtual net metering. So that's a bit of a a wonky phrase, but essentially what it means is, well, it's like net metering. So when you have solar panels on your house, that means you can generate energy and sell some of that energy back to the grid, to the utility. Virtual net metering or remote net metering allows you to do that same thing, but when the panels are not located at your house. 
And in addition to virtual net metering, interconnection rules are also really important. And those are the requirements for utilities to connect distributed solar to the grid. So these are some of the things that can be included in community solar policy. There can also be incentives and tax credits, though these work differently for community solar than they would for traditional homeowners installing solar in their roofs, for example. Looking at it another way, are there policies that can hurt community solar or prevent it from being developed? Yeah, that's really interesting. And I definitely asked Allison about this as well. As it turns out, there are some. One policy that can hurt community solar is to put a cap on the amount of megawatts that can be built. So some states have done this, but what it does is it creates a finite market. And so that's not attractive to developers. And that happened in a big way in Illinois. You mentioned Massachusetts, Minnesota, and New York as states where community solar is really starting to take off. Tell us more about what those states are doing to enable that growth. Absolutely. Uh, New York is the leading state in community solar in the country. And just earlier this year, it reached one gigawatt of community solar capacity. It has no plans of slowing down on solar developments either. This is all part of the state's plan to achieve 70% of electricity from renewable sources by 2030. And the governor's goal is to achieve 10 gigawatts of solar by 2030. Minnesota, I was surprised to learn, has the second most community solar programs in the country. The state had 837 megawatts of operational capacity in June of 2022. And unlike Illinois, which we heard about just now, Minnesota has not placed a cap on community solar capacity, which is in part why they have been so successful. In third place, though with new projects being installed at less than half the rate of New York, is my home state of Massachusetts. Uh, Massachusetts initially passed virtual net metering in 2008, but community solar didn't really take off until 2014, which was the first year the renewable energy certificates were available as financial incentives. Our state later also passed a new solar incentive program called the Solar Massachusetts Renewable Target, also known as SMART. And in 2020, that program was doubled to a total of 3.2 gigawatts in total capacity. And that was aimed to help the solar industry recover from its low growth during the pandemic. So California, where I'm based, is a leader on clean energy. It's a leader on rooftop solar, on utility scale solar, other types of solar. It's a leader on climate just broadly. However, I notice it's missing from this community solar leadership list. So what is going on in the Golden State? Yeah, and this was really interesting to learn about as well. Um, Canary's Jeff St. John has also reported on California's community solar challenges. Uh, So we'll be sure to link that in the notes as well if you want to learn more. But here's what Allison told me about California. Yeah, California, man. So (laughs) I'm from California and I am surprised, but the way that the community solar programs and policies were designed in California, they just haven't penciled out for developers, like I was saying earlier. Developing community solar projects has to make economic sense. And in California, Basically, what's happened is that the developers don't get paid enough for the projects to make economic sense, to pass on savings to subscribers. And so everything is just more expensive and less attractive. So subscribers don't want to sign up, developers don't want to develop, and you don't get a ton of community solar. I know there's also a Department of Energy program that's designed to help advance community solar developments. What did Allison have to say about that? Yes. In October of last year, the DOE announced a new national community solar partnership with a target to enable community solar systems to power the equivalent of 5 million households by 2025 and create 1 billion in energy bill savings. 
What is interesting about that is they are tying it specifically to the Biden administration's Justice 40 goals. As a reminder, that is the federal government's goal that 40% of the overall benefits of certain federal investments flow to disadvantaged communities that are marginalized, underserved, or otherwise overburdened by pollution. It really centers potential energy savings of shared solar energy. And here's what Allison told me about that. The U.S. Department of Energy is leading a new national community solar partnership. And this is a program where their goal is to take community solar from serving around 600,000 households right now to serving, by 2025, 5 million households. This is a 700% increase And they want to save people 20% on their bills using community solar. That's about a billion dollars in savings. This program's ambitions are to save people money. So that is, I think, a major reason that people might be interested in community solar. Political Climate is brought to you by MCE. MCE was California's first community choice energy provider. For more than 10 years, MCE has helped communities across the Bay Area source significantly more renewable energy than the state average. Nearly 40 communities are now a part of MCE, and together they're leading on climate action for a brighter future. But the power of MCE is about more than clean energy. It's the power of people over profit. It's community power. MCE's efforts on climate justice have helped vulnerable communities gain access to electric vehicles, energy storage, and energy savings. By building and buying more renewable energy, MCE puts the power back in your hands. We all deserve a fossil-free future that combats climate change and prioritizes energy equity. Learn more and take action at mcecleanenergy.org. For me, the takeaway is that there's a lot of different options for decarbonizing today that fit different needs. There's a clear role for community solar, just like there's a clear role for rooftop solar on homes and businesses and massive projects out in deserts and the like. And community solar is another valuable tool in our toolkit. It's also interesting to note that the policies and rules for shared solar are coming largely from states and municipalities. And those are some of the jurisdictions that have net zero commitments in place, or in some cases, 100% renewable energy goals they want to meet. So when you have a bold goal like that in place, I think you'll see leaders look to all the tools they can access, including shared solar. Also, as we said at the top of the show, we're speaking after Senator Manchin pulled his support for the climate and clean energy provisions in a budget reconciliation bill at the federal level. So in light of that, I think this local action is just all the more important. Yeah, I think it's really significant because one thing to know is that we won't be able to generate the amount of solar power that we need just from homeowners' rooftops, right? We know that. And so community solar is a way that it makes it possible for people, like we said, who couldn't otherwise access clean energy in their own homes to do so and to participate in the clean energy revolution. Another thing that is huge are the energy savings, right? We know a lot of households in the U.S., are burdened by energy costs. And so this is a great way to lower those energy bills while also knowing that you're consuming clean energy that is good for the grid and good for resiliency. So please be sure to check out the links in the show notes if you are interested in learning more. There are some other things to keep in mind, though, when you are shopping around for developments. And so this is what Alison, after all of her research, suggests that you can look out for as a consumer. Community solar projects have different features. So 
Some things to look out for are whether they offer guaranteed savings. You know, is it 5%? Is it 10%? Is it zero? Does it actually cost more money to participate than to not? In which case, you don't save money, but you get to participate in putting more clean energy on the grid. Sometimes there's a cost to sign up. And some projects are targeted to low and moderate income subscribers. And so is there an income threshold that you need to meet? Or do you need to qualify as low or moderate income? What's the contract length? And is there a cancellation fee? So those are some questions that I would ask, or those are some features that I would look at when comparing different community solar projects. Well, I think it's safe to say community solar is another bright spot on the solar landscape. So with that, Maria Virginia, thank you so much for the breakdown. Thanks also to Allison for her insights. Thanks very much to our editor, Kyle McDonald. Thanks to everyone for listening. Political Climate is presented with support from the USC Schwarzenegger Institute and in partnership with Canary Media. I'm Julia Piper. We'll be back again soon.